morning. And welcome to those joining us remotely. Welcome to you who are here with us in person, especially to those of you who are our guests this morning. Glad you're here. A decent number of folks have just started getting settled into our church family recently. If that's you, I want to make sure you know about this thing that we call Realm. Uh, so for two years now, past two years, Realm, uh, it's an app, has been an easy way to make sure you know what's going on in the life of our church family. So we don't print bulletins anymore. We try to keep announcements in the service at minimum. We want you to stay in the loop. So it's called Realm Connect. It looks like that in the app store. Uh, it's an app on your phone accessible by computer or th uh, through our website. What North Sub puts on Realm is only for our congregation, so it's not public, and it's handy in several ways. One, our church directory is there if you need to find somebody's contact info. Two, our church news. We push out one item per day to keep you in the loop. Three, giving is super easy on Realm, just two clicks to give a gift using the app. And you can theoretically do all that uh, in other ways without the app, but what's only on the Realm app is, are things like this. Uh, new baby born this week, sign up here for the meal train, right? Or pray for the family of one of our members who passed away, here's the service times. Right? Or giving away our jogging stroller, anybody want it? Things like that pop up on Realm from time to time that don't show up in any of our emails or anywhere else. So summary is, if you're not on Realm with us, you are missing out on some key happenings in the life of our church. So if you want to download that Realm Connect app uh, or access it on computer, you can log in using your email address that we have on file for you. If you're having a hard time getting settled in, reach out to the church office and uh, we'd love to help you. Hey, today I'd love to answer a few questions if there are any at the end of the service. So uh, save that number in your phone if you haven't before. And if you have a question during the sermon, text it to that number and I'll try to respond at the end of this morning's message. Good to be together. Let's pray. Lord, you're big and you love us. That makes us glad. Now let the words that I say and let the thoughts we all think be pleasing in your sight. For Jesus' sake, amen. Hey, what would be your knee-jerk gut reaction to this invitation? In 2023, let's grow in our intellectual knowledge of God. In 2023, let's grow in our intellectual knowledge of God. God. How would you react to that? I bet that 10 of us might fall at 10 different points along a spectrum when it comes to our gut feelings about the idea of growing an intellectual knowledge of God. I imagine that some of us are by nature learners, so we're always eager to learn new things, acquire knowledge, especially about God. Imagine others of us, though, are so glad to be done with school never even thought about going back for more education. And as such, maybe you're filled with dread. Anything that sounds like it could be academic. Right? Imagine some who are newer to the faith might be like, this is perfect. I've got so many questions. Right? Let me get out my notebook and pen. So much about God that I want to know. And others of us, maybe who have been around the block for a little while, when it comes to Christianity, you might say, oh, I'm burned out on studying God after all these years, completing study after study. It's, it's dried up my walk with God until I've felt dead, lifeless. See, so there's a spectrum. And because I think churches know that so many people are instinctively averse to this sort of brain work, many churches go out of their way 
to highlight that, oh, we're not that kind of church. All right, so here's some of the things I've heard in various churches I've attended. Maybe you've heard some of these. Here at our church, we're not hung up on orthodoxy. That's right knowledge or right teaching. We're about orthopraxy, right practice. We're about living it out. Right? Uh, remember I told a pastor I was going to seminary. Seminary, more like cemetery. Or we aren't saved by agreeing to doctrinal statements, they might say, or, but by following Christ, which means being like him. That's what's important. We'll revisit these later. But for now, I just want to point out that what these churches are reacting against is something we should all be on guard against. Namely, dead, lifeless religion. Possessing all the answers about God, but devoid of any sort of delight in God able to ace an advanced theology exam, but failing to produce the fruit of godly character. As far as that sort of religion is concerned, I agree with these churches' desire to steer clear. Who wants a full brain but a heart of stone, right? The devil himself has really good doctrine. And on that reasoning, note that ironically it is reasoning, where many Christians and many churches and many pastors go is, hey, let's not get hung up studying theology or wrestling too deeply with the doctrine of God, lest all of our study turn us into these icy-hearted intellectuals whose faith is merely academic and cognitive, devoid of life. And so they steer their churches to downplay theology. Question, is that an advisable course of action for the church? Is it an advisable path for any of us as individual Christians? That's a question I want to answer today. Would you turn with me to Romans chapter 1? Romans chapter 1 is where we'll be today. The reason we're tackling this question today about the importance of theology is because this is week one of a 21-week sermon series in which we'll be taking a swim in the deep end of the doctrine of God. I mean, we're going to be digging, we're going to be exploring, we're going to be chewing. It's going to be work. It's going to be the most rewarding kind of work. So, uh, like when you go to the gym, right? Everybody wants to work out the beach muscles. True? See the guys over there doing biceps and triceps in the mirror or for an hour. And when it's leg day, you don't see them. I want to tell you, I went to the gym the other day, and who did I see there? Our own Pastor Sean. And what was the first thing he did? He got on that squat rack. He does not skip leg day. That's the kind of people we hire here at North Sub. People who don't skip leg day, right? Um, that leg work is more important than the beach muscles. True? But it's hard work, and it's without the immediate gratification that the beach muscles give you. And I think of this sermon series like we're about to go 21 weeks without skipping leg day. And I'm excited because I'll speak for myself. This is a sort of training that I needed this year. I don't know if it'll end up being the most watched series on our church's YouTube channel. I hope it does. But whether or not people are eager for this to go searching out a more robust doctrine of God, we need it. And so today, I want to make my case for why I think leg day is important. Uh, for why the topics we're covering in this series are so important for the life of the Christian and as such for the life of the church. And, and in order to do so... 
I mainly want to follow the Apostle Paul's train of thought through a few verses in Romans 1. Uh, and I hope you're there with me. Romans is a letter written two or three decades after the death and resurrection of Jesus, written by the Apostle Paul, former hunter of Christians who himself became a Christian. He writes it to the church in Rome, and in the letter he lays out for this church the good news of how God has saved us through Jesus Christ. But before he gets to how we're saved, he spends the better part of three chapters at the beginning explaining what exactly we need to be saved from. Like, what went wrong? How did humans incur God's wrath on us? And in doing so, he effectively lays out a three-part progression of what went wrong. Follow along with me and look for that three-part progression as I read out loud verses 18 to 25. He says, For God's wrath is revealed from heaven against all godlessness and unrighteousness of people who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Since... What can be known about God is evident among them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, that is, his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly seen since the creation of the world, being understood through what he has made. As a result, people are without excuse. For though they knew God, they did not glorify him as God or show gratitude Instead, their thinking became worthless, worthless, and their senseless hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images regarding, or resembling mortal man, birds, four-footed animals, and reptiles. Therefore, God delivered them over in the desires of their hearts to sexual impurity so that their bodies were degraded among themselves. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie, and worshiped and served what has been created instead of the creator, who is praised forever. Amen. Did you catch the three-part progression? It starts in verse 21. It goes like this. The first step is failure to glorify God, glorify God as God, for who he is. Right? Then we exchange our worship for created things. And then we start participating in unrighteousness. According to Paul, this is the general path followed by humanity as a whole. One, two, three, right? So let's take a closer look at each of those. First, we fail to glorify God for who he is. Uh, this is where it all starts to go wrong. And that's why this is the passage that we've chosen for today. According to this passage, the evil in the world doesn't start with a mass murder or with sexual violence or with the formation of a human trafficking ring. According to Paul, participation in unrighteousness is not the first thing that happens. Follow the order with me in reverse. There's unrighteousness we participate in, but not before we exchange our worship of God for worship of created things. And that's not before we fail to honor God for who he is, fail to recognize him for who he actually is. That's why we exchange our true worship for false worship. For though they knew God, they did not glorify him as God. That's where things start to go wrong. And it goes wrong of all places in our minds. See all the mind language, the thinking language here. It's the oldest human tendency of all. God made us in his image, and each of us has returned the favor. By predisposition, we all want to remake God in our image, in our minds at least, in a way that we prefer him to be, right? 
we listen to Oprah or Jordan Peterson or Brene Brown talk about God and we say, ooh, I like to think about God like that. That's a God I like. As it turns out, the, the picture we paint of God in our minds usually ends up looking eerily similar to a bigger version of ourselves. That's why God says it like this in Psalm 50. He's Throughout this psalm, if you take a look at it later, he spends the early verses of the psalm listing wicked things that we humans have done. But then he says, hey, you've done these things, and I kept silent. You thought I was just like you. You thought I was just like you. Don't we? Don't we like to think of him as pretty much like us? I catch myself drifting towards those sorts of imaginings because a God like me won't challenge me, won't threaten me, won't call me out. A God like me is comfortable to worship, affirming, good for my self-esteem. But of course, this, there's this pesky question that gets in the way of our blissful imaginings, namely, what if the God we've imagined in our minds is not the God who's actually there? To use the words of Romans 1, what if our comforting thoughts are actually worthless? Right? What if I'm not actually wise in imagining God the way I'm imagining him, but rather I've become a fool? If we get our thoughts about God wrong, our ignorance isn't blissful. There are implications. It's the first step in a chain reaction. And before our deficient thinking has implications for the way that we act, it has implications for the way that we worship. That's step two. Let's look at that. We exchange the worship of God for worship of created things, right? Here it is. Exchange the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man, birds, four-footed animals, and reptiles. And in verse 25, kind of a restatement, we worshiped and served what has been created instead of the creator who's praised forever. Amen. There's an instead dynamic here, right? Instead. There's a creator God that we're supposed to be worshiping. And there are these created things we worship instead, hence the worship exchange, right? And we might think ourselves innocent of this until we understand what worship is. Fundamentally, worship is the assigning of ultimate worth. Worship is the assigning of ultimate worth. And as Tim Keller points out, because we're always assigning ultimate worth to something or other, we humans are always worshiping. We can't help it. When we find something to be valuable, we just do engage our whole being, mind, will, emotions, in what can't be called anything other than worship, right? So when your team catches the last second touchdown in the championship game, what happens to you? Your whole self involuntarily, automatically engages in some way. When you take that old heirloom necklace to the jeweler, it's just been sitting on the shelf forever, then you get the news that it's priceless. Your whole self automatically, involuntarily engages. Right? And here's the thing, we can't just decide to make ourselves engage in that way. We just do engage that way about the objects in our lives in which we find maximal value, maximal worth. Because you and I are designed as worshiping beings, programmed to worship at all times. The question on any given day is, what or whom am I worshiping today? And here in our passage, Paul's laying out our tragic history. Inexplicably, although we've encountered on some level the immortal God who's created everything, verse 20, we've said, ah, but you know what really gets my gears going? 
those statues of humans and animals. That's what I find myself drawn to engage in worship. And over the centuries and even today, that's of course what many humans have done. But you say, not me. Not a shrine in my house. Never said prayer, never said a single prayer to a statue. The question, uh, are we all that different from statue worshipers when we have that celebrity's posters on our wall? Wear their jerseys, share their every social media post, try to meet them at their concerts. And broader than that, aren't we all guilty of what's being talked about in this passage when it's not limited to physical statues, but when it's framed the way it's framed in verse 25, that we've worshipped and served what has been created instead of the creator? Like which of us hasn't at least momentarily engaged with money, a created thing, as though it was more appealing than God? Which of us hasn't at least momentarily engaged with sex, a created thing, as though it was more appealing than God? Which of us hasn't at least momentarily engaged with a particular achievement or a promotion or a house or a car, all created things, as though they were more appealing than God? We all have. And that's why none of us have ever committed any sin without first committing the sin of idolatry, which is worshiping something created over the Creator. Here's how it goes. Before I actually ever have an affair, I won't start the affair until I've first started to believe that the treasure of a woman's adoring attention is a greater treasure than God is. Right? That treasure has become more valuable to me than God is, or I wouldn't have had the affair. Before I actually ever cheat my business partner, I won't do that until I've first started to believe that the treasure of earthly wealth is a greater treasure than God is. Once that treasure has become more valuable to me than God is, then I might cheat my business partner. Not until then, though. Before I ever actually go ahead with throwing away my money, making prop bets on NBA games on DraftKings, I won't place that first bet until I first started to believe that the treasure of that adrenaline hit is a greater treasure than God is. That treasure has become more valuable to me than God is, or else I wouldn't be gambling my money away. See how there's no such thing as a sin that doesn't result from disordered worship? At the root of every sinful act is a prior exchange that I've found it preferable now to worship a created thing instead of God. I've found this created thing more worthy of my worship than God is. Make sure we don't misunderstand what's actually gone wrong here counterintuitively, it's not that we've thought too highly of created things. That's, that's not exactly the case Paul's making. Right? No, he, he's not saying that we've overestimated these created things. He's saying that we've underestimated the treasure that God is. And that underestimation of God took place one step prior to worship when we failed to glorify God for who he is. When our thinking about him got muddled, and we started imagining him as different from what he's actually like, we distorted God when we did that in our minds. And because the real God, the God who's there, is perfect in every way, any distortion of God does necessarily result in a smaller God, and therefore in a God who's less worthy of worship than the real God is. 
Now I take that distorted small God that I've created in my mind, the one who's just a bigger version of me, and I take that God and I put him on the scales next to any of those things on this earth that I love and treasure. And watch what happens. Maybe now enjoying my vacation home is a greater treasure than God is. Maybe setting up my kid to play in the NHL is a greater treasure than God is. Maybe sleeping with my boyfriend or girlfriend is a greater treasure than God is. If God really is the small God that we imagine him to be, then we're not wrong in saying that other things are better than him. I mean, let's be honest with each other, right? Some of the things our neighbors are chasing are actually worth chasing. Let's not pretend that the ecstasy of illicit romance isn't an incredible rush. Let's not pretend that the hoisting of a world championship trophy isn't close to the pinnacle of human highs. Let's not pretend that having your name mentioned among the all-time greats in your field of work doesn't provide a sense of meaning to life. Don't try to tell me that those things aren't great because I know better. They, They really are great. They're worth chasing. Life with those things is better than life without them unless... Unless, unless there's a God who's greater. Could there be a God who's even greater? Like not, not, not God's greater than all those things we chase after because there's no guarantee you'll ever attain those things that you're chasing after. I'm not asking that. I'm asking if I could be guaranteed to attain everything that this world considers a life worth living. Is there a God who's even greater than that? If not, why are we doing this on Sunday mornings? There's a lot better things we could be doing, right? We're getting together so we can convince each other to choose the safe, second best path for life I don't want second best for my life and I can't in good conscience get up here Sunday after Sunday for the next 21 weeks and tell you God is better than what you're chasing if privately we all know that God's really like the safety school we fell back on when we applied to college and didn't get into our dream school if there's something out there greater than God then friend don't give up on chasing that dream let's go after ultimate fulfillment wherever it can be found But the Bible claims that there really is a God who's even greater than the heights of human experience. Could it be? And that's what we're going to spend these 21 weeks exploring. We we each need to wrestle with that for ourselves. If at the end of these 21 weeks, you still believe that you've found a treasure out there greater than God, I'll be the first one to say, don't keep going through the motions of the God thing out of a sense of duty. You've only got one life. Go chase what's worth chasing but I just believe that if we sincerely search out what's actually worth chasing that that search is going to lead us to our knees before God to acknowledge that no one greater exists right let's close the loop with this last inevitable step of the journey we participate in unrighteousness we imagine God to be something other than who he is then we found other things more worthy of worship than him And so we directed our worship away from him. And finally, the fruit of that is unrighteous actions. 
that's a word we don't use a lot in everyday speech, uh, unrighteousness, kind of archaic, right? But, it, but it's used in this passage in contrast to the righteousness of a God who only ever does what's right. We're not like him. So here was verse 18, for God's wrath is revealed from heaven against all godlessness and unrighteousness of people who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. If we were to read past where I stopped in verse 25, we'd see a detailing of the depravity of sexual sin as one manifestation of this unrighteousness. But then we get this list starting in verse 29. They're filled with all unrighteousness. What's that look like? Evil, greed, wickedness. They're full of envy, murder, quarrels, deceit, and malice. They're gossip, slanderers, God-haters, arrogant, proud, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, senseless, untrustworthy, unloving, and unmerciful. Well then, here's one thing about these various forms of unrighteousness here in this list. Some items on this list our culture recognizes as unrighteousness. True? Uh, murder. All of our neighbors agree that that's bad, no matter what religion they are or aren't. Uh, even untrustworthiness. Nobody likes an untrustworthy person. We can all agree that that's unrighteousness. It's not good. Other items on this list raise eyebrows in our place and time today, right? Disobeying parents? Kind of laugh at that now. Arrogance, some of us look for that in our political candidates. The more arrogant, the better. Gossip, our favorite TV shows are centered around it. So some of what God calls vice, we call vice. Other things God calls vice, we think of as virtue. And that's been true for every culture for all of time. No culture in human history has shared God's definition of righteousness. Not perfectly. Every culture has called some things good that God calls evil and some things evil that God calls good. One culture loves the Bible's teachings on honoring parents. They point to those verses and say, yes, the Bible's got some wisdom here. Honor your parents, but is offended by the Bible's teachings on wealth. Another culture loves the Bible's treatment, uh, uh, teaching about the treatment of the poor. Yes, we need to take care of the poor, but is offended by the Bible's teachings on sexuality. But that's what we're going to say about God a hundred times in this series, that he's not us. And so what he calls unrighteousness is going to offend each of us at one point or another. We might be blind to the fact that what we're doing even is unrighteousness. But what constitutes unrighteousness aside, the point here is that nobody just begins acting unrighteously. That's step three. Without first failing to acknowledge something true about God. Step one, maybe I pride myself in being tolerant of whatever makes other people happy. Maybe that's my thing in life, right? So, so I imagine, well, then God must be tolerant of whatever makes people happy, like me. So surely he's fine with me making choices that make me happy. And I go ahead and prioritize my own happiness and my ethical choices. Or maybe for you, it's very different from that. Maybe for you, it's, well, I imagine that God's cruel, like my human father was cruel, so why would I want to have anything to do with God? So I disregard him making choices contrary to what he says is best. Or maybe one more. Maybe I imagine that God's somewhere up there kind of detached, kind of unconcerned with ordinary people like me. So it's probably even no big deal to him what I do with my life today. 
so I kind of functionally live as my own little God, writing my own story here on earth, right? See, do you see how none of us rises above our conception of God? Every one of us travels this three-step road. Once I've internalized some sort of distorted image of God, now my worship gets redirected off of God onto something else, and then finally that will result in wicked actions. That's why A.W. Tozer said, and this is an extended quote I crammed on the screen. I'm going to read the whole thing, though, because it's so spot on. He says, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. The history of mankind will probably show that no people has ever risen above its religion. And man's spiritual history will positively demonstrate that no religion has ever been greater than its idea of God. Worship is as pure or base as the worshiper entertains high or low thoughts of God. For this reason, the gravest question before the church is always God himself. And the most portentous fact about any man is not what he he at a given time may say or do, but what he in his deep heart conceives God to be like. We tend, by a secret law of the soul, to move toward our mental image of God. This is true not only of the individual Christian, but of the company of Christians that composes the church. Always the most revealing thing about the church is her idea of God. What do you think about that? Interestingly, C.S. Lewis had maybe the most compelling rebuttal to this Tozer quote. Here's how he responded. C.S. Lewis said, I read in a periodical the other day that the fundamental thing is how we think of God. By God himself, it is not. How God thinks of us is not only more important, but infinitely more important. Indeed, how we think of him is of no importance, except insofar as it is related to how he thinks of us. So, you've got a compelling counter-argument. What do you think? Team Tozier or Team Lewis? Here's my question for C.S. Lewis. How can I know what God thinks of me unless I know who God is? How can I know if he's mad at me today, happy with me, attentive to me, indifferent toward me? I can't answer any of those questions without understanding first who God is in himself, in his character, in his nature, as he's chosen to reveal it to us, right? So that's why, with Lewis's important caveat duly noted, I do think Tozer's fundamentally still right that what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. I can't know what God thinks of me until I know that. And I don't know if you've heard any of this taught before, but for me, the first time I heard it, it made sense of so many things in my life. That's why a, a person stuck in a sin, a sin pattern you just can't break, can listen to a hundred sermons about that particular sin. Stop this sin, stop this sin. You listen over and over again with no effect, right? But then he or she spends an hour looking up at the stars one night while singing worship songs to God and reflecting on his nature. And he or she suddenly feels like, I I don't want to partake in that sin anymore. Why does that happen? That enslaving sin didn't, become any less enjoyable that night under the stars. What happened is that person just realized, if God is like this, that means something for what's of ultimate worth, and that makes me want to live a different way. That's what happened to me. I can't tell you how many sermons 
I listened to to try to convince myself to stop looking at porn back in the day. Then 18 years ago, I listened to an Easter sermon. Had nothing to do with porn whatsoever. It just lifted up Christ in a way that floored me. It is majesty and his beauty. And I just knew that moment that I had found victory over porn that I had been looking for for so long. I fundamentally didn't want it anymore because I had found something finally that I treasured more. Because life works in this way, when it's all said and done, I wouldn't be surprised if this sermon series on the attributes of God ends up being the most practical sermon series that we've ever preached. Because there's nothing more practical, nothing more important for our lives than what we think about God. Our big idea today is this. We won't be able to live in a way that honors God if we fail to acknowledge him for who he really is. We won't be able to live in a way that honors God if we fail to acknowledge him for who he really is. That's why we're going to be engaging on this quest over these coming months to try to get our view of God to align more closely to the God that's actually there. Uh, Let's close the loop, shall we, by circling back to the objections we raised at the beginning. These deserve to be taken seriously, right? Things like orthopraxy over orthodoxy, things like learning making us dead, uh, things like we're not saved by agreeing to doctrinal statements but by following Christ, which means being like him. Let's create a column B with these priorities. Spiritual vitality, Christ-like living, vibrant intimacy with God. With column A over here being doctrine, theology, a more accurate understanding of God. Okay. Column A is so often understood to be at odds with column B. You can have this or that, right? You can be this sort of church or that sort of church. You can be this sort of Christian or that sort of Christian. Haven't you heard people pit them against each other like that? In order to seek this, you got to give up this, and vice versa. The possibility I've been raising today is what if it's an and, not an or? What if I can have more of this and more of this, right? Or even better. What if it's a full send pursuit of column A for the purpose of getting column B? I think that's even better. Not A or B, not even A and B, but A so that B. One pastor used this analogy and it helped me immensely. He said, doctrine is like blood, the blood that pumps through our bodies. Our body parts need it. It's the source of life, nutrients, nourishment, right? When pumping through the veins, that blood is the very thing that makes us alive. But take that same blood out of your body and pull it in a vat. That's weird and gross, and dead, and wrong, right? Doctrine is like that, right? If we feel like there's been a time in our lives when doctrine made us dead, it wasn't the doctrine that made us dead, right? It's that we put the doctrine in a vat, and we made it an end in and of itself, and just let it sit there without bringing life and nourishment to our bodies to live like Christ, to be closer to Christ, What made us dead was taking away the so that and pursuing doctrine for doctrine's sake. What we learn in our minds is life-giving when the learning is not an end in and of itself, when it's serving the purpose of loving God more, loving neighbor better, enhancing our intimacy with God. That, That sort of pursuit of knowledge doesn't lend itself to divisiveness or pride or staleness because it's that which is animating our highest pursuits. 
some of you are like, land the plane, okay? So I'm going to do what preachers do and just make one final closing argument. Then I'll land the plane, okay? In the end, there's no, there's no way around our theology shaping the way we live. It turns out that we're all theologians, whatever line of work or life we might be in. All of our lives flow to a significant degree from our theology. It's just a question of to what degree our theology actually gets God right. It's like Martin Lloyd-Jones explained, and I'm paraphrasing. He says, the person who says that doctrine doesn't matter is still speaking in a doctrinal manner, even in making that statement. Right? Think about this one from our list. This uh, person here who says, we aren't saved by agreeing to doctrinal statements, but by following Christ, which means being like him. The person who says this has committed himself or herself to a particular doctrinal conviction, namely that the God who exists doesn't really care much about if I get doctrine right. The God that exists instead saves by works, by me being like him, right? This is extremely doctrinal as a statement. Even the person, in other words, even the person who's most averse to the study of doctrine is still staking everything on a particular doctrine of God. So given that we can't get around it, and given the importance of theology to life. If you're here with us this morning and you're not sure who you think God is, or if you're not sure he's your great treasure at this particular season in your life, or if you just want to deepen your intimacy with him, I hope you'll come along with us on this 21-week journey. As we see him more closely for who he is, I pray he'll become our treasure like never before. Let me pray. Lord, that's what we want, not to just fill our heads with knowledge and uh, feel real good about ourselves, pat ourselves on the back for being the church in town who has all our theological ducks in a row. That's not what we want at all. What we want is to know you, to be captivated by you, to treasure you above everything else, to see you for the treasure that you are. That's what we want. And as such, we want to live out of that lives that actually do honor you instead of lives that are uh, lived by our own devices. So God, do that work in us over these coming weeks. Shape us, reform us into people who are more like you and mostly form us into people who treasure you above all else. In Jesus' name, amen. I told you I'd answer some questions. Let me take a quick peek here see uh, if any questions came through. We got one here. Um, how do you think this deeply important head knowledge of God should become heart belief in who God is? How does the knowledge move from head to heart? We always, uh, we always are hearing, like, move it from head to heart. How does one actually do that? Um, and I kind of wish we could just take a quick throw it out to you guys and hear a couple thoughts. Um, my thoughts is it takes work, right? It, it can't be just, I read my Bible, I listen to my sermon, and I move forward, right? It takes work by myself, alone with God in a secret place, right? Say, God, I don't want to just know this stuff. I want to be transformed in a different kind of person. Send your spirit to remake me based on what I've learned about you today. It takes being in community with others, who, can, who I'm inviting actively, not just being in the community with them and we all kind of get together and have a Bible study. I'm talking about being in a community with them in which I 
am actively inviting them, hey, can you tell me what you see in my life that doesn't line up? Can you tell me where you're hearing me uh, have perceptions of God that are off and where that maybe is affecting my life? And, and an invitation to actually speak into that and grow me. I think those are some of the ways that that can move from head to heart and start to become something that flows from my head into affecting, affecting my life. Good, that's that one today. Thanks for sending in that question. Uh, the band's going to come up now and lead us in one final song as we close out our time in worship today. <laughs>